Relations, uh, stipendiary lecturer at Merton, um, associate fellow of the Oxford Institute of uh, Ethics and Law of Armed Conflict, um, a DPhil here, uh, and MPhil from Cambridge, um, so certainly qualified, uh, and of course originally from Germany. Those who don't know uh, will um, be interested to know about her background there as well. We had a very interesting conversation at lunch about that. Um, her research. Um, it's focused on a number of areas, and there's uh, two or three of she's working on at the moment. Um, but I'm not going to steal your thumb, I'm going to let you perhaps uh, make sure we are aware of those things at the very end because there's two very interesting things coming out, particularly the new book, which we're waiting for with data back. <coughs> Hopefully, AUP will see the light and make sure that they publish that uh, soon. Um, so, Janina, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, you. Um, thank you, Rob, for that kind introduction and for the opportunity to speak in this forum. Um, so this isn't actually a book yet. It's my DPhil, which I defended in uh, September 2011, and which I'm still turning into a book. Um, this project was originally inspired on a puzzle. There is a certain type of international armed conflict that is increasingly legalized, and it is mostly um, the coalition, Western coalitions, often under the leadership of the U.S., intervening in third-world countries. And these highly legalized armed conflicts nevertheless engender more rather than less moral outrage and public criticism. Um, while basically every US military intervention since the 1991 Gulf War has been hailed as the most legalized war in the history of mankind, these same wars has all, have always also inspired vociferous criticism regarding their humanitarian impl um, implications. This sort of Dichotomous commentary, I think, reached a peak over the last couple of years with um, the U.S. tightening its rules of engagement for airstrikes in Afghanistan a number of times until they were actually much stricter than the law would require them to be. Yet they, these measures failed to quell public disaffection and the um, continuous um, protest by the international community. So um, there, this coincidence of moral condemnation and commendation for comprehensive legalization um, is... Obviously, there are multi multiple reasons for that. It's a complex question, but I think it raises one question with some urgency, which is, can international law be effective in war? Can it actually meaningful restrain states' actions during armed conflict? The existence of international law and the compliance of states with international law, specific in the context of armed conflict, is still somewhat of a surprise to scholars in international law and strategic studies, and even actually to international lawyers, because war is in some ways the realist ideal type of anarchical international relations, where the survival of the state is on the line, and um, security is a zero-sum game, and common ground is hard to come by. So in some ways, our most um, immediate reaction to seeing that law has penetrated that realm of international relations was surprise. And as a result, a lot of the time in public commentary as well as in academic discussions, effectiveness of international law is equated with recourse to it. International law is being called upon in decision making, hence it must be effective. But I think not least in light of this um, dichotomous commentary with um, continuous moral outrage by legalized war, I think we have to ask the question differently. Effectiveness must mean more than just recourse to law. And what I think it must mean is we have to ask whether law actually makes a difference in warfare and whether that difference amounts to a normative improvement. And in order to shed light on that question, I asked three specific questions, one theoretical, one empirical, and one normative. The first question is, can international law actually make a difference for behavior and war, specifically for the definition of a legitimate target of attack. It is necessary to ask this question because 
states create international law and um, international law addresses states. And for that, because of that, there's this lingering suspicion that international law merely reflects state interest. So international law endorses how states want to act anyway, and as a result, it doesn't really make a difference. I will mostly bracket my sort of theoretical inquiry into that question. I answer the question affirmatively that international law can make a difference for behavior, and that is mostly because at the level of the individual, the individual cognitive and motivational processes of decision-making are influenced by whether or not an actor resorts to a law or not. But since this is a question that is about international law in general and not specific to war, I won't talk about this very much in the context of, um, of today. The empirical question I then ask is, does international law actually make a difference, specifically in US air warfare, regarding the definition of legitimate target? And I answer that question affirmatively as well. International law is what I call behaviorally relevant. It makes a difference. I then put that difference um, to a normative evaluation. Is that difference a normative improvement? And I answer the question negatively, hence um, the conclusion of partial effectiveness of um, law in war. Law is not normatively successful. I should probably specify that by that I don't mean that um, war would be normatively preferable or better if there was no law, if um, belligerents did not at all recur to law. What I'm basically meaning by saying it's not normatively successful is that law could do better in war. It could regulate war in a way that is normatively preferable. And I hope this will become clear over the course of the talk. Obviously, I can't make this argument in its entirety today. So in the talk, I will focus on making three points. Um, sort of by way of theoretical introduction, I will outline what I perceive is the vision or the logic according to which positive international law foresees that conduct um, war ought to be waged, which I call the logic of sufficiency. I will then um, talk about my empirical findings and um, explain that the legalization of US air warfare has coincided and actually law has encouraged the rise of an alternative logic of warfare, which I call the logic of efficiency. And I will then compare these two logics and argue that sufficiency is normatively superior to efficiency, hence the lack of normative success. Let me start with the theoretical and the legal part. As everyone probably knows, <coughs> law, as well as conventional just war theory, relies on two main principles to define a legitimate target of attack. The principle of distinction, which prohibits to ever deliberately and directly target what is defined as civilians, either persons or objects. And the principle of proportionality, which um, is not in the law in this form, but basically um, in its origin says that the side effects of legitimate military operations should not be dis disproportionate to the military advantages achieved. I will focus on distinction today because I'm specifically interested in how law proposes to delimit war, to delimit the sphere of legitimate military engagement from the rest of society. So how is distinction enshrined in positive law? Um, Article 52, paragraph 2 of the first additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions embodies the um, definition of a military objective as far as objects are concerned, which is what I will focus on. And it basically gives us two criteria for defining an object that is a military objective. It has to make an effective contribution to military action, and its engagement has to yield a definite military advantage. Most commentators nowadays think that these actually logically presuppose each other. So you only get a military advantage out of enge engagement because and if um, the object made a contribution to the enemy's military action in the first place. But what do these two mean? How does the law hence propose we should delimit legitimate from illegitimate objects of attack? 
there are two interpretive controversies that plague this definition of a military objective. And the first is about the degree of nexus that it, between an object and the military activity of the enemy, and hence between the attack and the resulting military advantage. The US interpretation is that the military advantage arises from the engagement of objects that contribute to an opposing state's ability to wage war. This is taken from um, a doctrinal document um, of US doctrine. Basically, this is an incredibly broad definition. Almost anything can be construed as um, contributing to a state's ability to wage war. It's morale, it's civilian leadership, it's um, infrastructure, it's industry, specifically if we consider that states tend to streamline their activities when they are in war, basically putting everything to use in the context of the military activity. This interpretation stands in quite stark contrast to the International Committee of the Red Cross's um, take on what military advantage means and the degree of nexus that an object has to have to military action, basically that it can only be um, can only consist in ground gate and annihilating or weakening the enemy armed forces. So this is a very um, restricted definition. A military advantage is really an erosion of actual military capabilities. The second um, interpretive controversy concerns the frame of reference for, for the definition of an advantage. Um, again, the ICRC cautions and says an attack as a whole is a finite event not to be confused with an entire war. So basically it tells us there has to be a limited piece of military action out of which we want to gain an advantage. We can't talk about the entire war and what we might, might be advantageous in light of winning the war. The US interpretation on the other hand is that, and this is not actually um, just the US that has this interpretation, that military advantage is not restricted to tactical gains but is linked to the full context of war strategy. Besides being grammatically somewhat confusing, this, the implication of this is that basically the framework, the frame of reference for defining what counts as progress, what counts as an advantage, can be so broad as to um, include what a war is ultimately about. And not since, only since Clausewitz we know that wars are always about politics, right? States do not end up in war unless they have a political goal in war. So the danger of that interpretation, and we actually see the um, results of that in contemporary US air warfare, as I will argue later, is that there's a short, ever shorter line of thinking between the overall political goals of a war and specific targeting choices. And let me give you an example that is not actually related to US air warfare, but um, Israel's intervention in the Gaza Strip in late 2008. Um, Israel famously targeted um, the police academy during a graduation ceremony. So if you consider the goal of um, the intervention to be stopping Hamas from launching rockets into Israel, then that seems somewhat strange. You don't, it's not entirely clear how the military, what military advantage should arise from an attack on the police academy. But if you use the broader political goal of this intervention, the sort of strategic context of Israel wanting to loosen Hamas' grip on the Gaza Strip, undermine it politically, then it makes perfect sense to um, attack the structures, the, fa the political fabric of Hamas' hold on the Gaza Strip. Basically, I argue that um, the first additional protocol gives us a clue as to which one of those interpretations is the correct one. I concede that um, the textual interpretation of, the of Article 52 is open-ended. However, if we put the provision in a systematic context, the law actually settles the matter in favor of a high degree of nexus and a narrow frame of reference for interpreting military advantage. 
And the reason is that the first additional protocol is the first international treaty to actually regulate the conduct of hostilities as such in light of the prohibition of the use of force. By implication, there is, it doesn't rest on a, on a virtual list of causa justa, of legitimate political goals that one may pursue with force. Basically, it rests on the independence of questions of conduct from resort, on the independence of what we sometimes call use in bellum from use at bellum. As a result, a law that attempts to regulate behavior in war without reference to the reasons for states' fight must re um, rely on a generic concept of generic military victory that applies across wars, no matter their political and moral concept. And it is that concept of generic military victory, I argue, that is the broadest possible frame of reference for um, interpreting military advantage. Because in turn, if you think, if um, we do not actually delimit the frame of reference in that way, we would not be able to devise how to act in war without reference to the either political reasons why we are in war or the moral goals that we think we are defending. But it is uncontroversial that the first additional protocol um, applies as the preamble says, in all circumstances and without adverse distinction based on the nature or origin of the armed conflict and most importantly on the causes espoused by or attributed by the parties to the conflict. Another um, argument backing up this interpretation in favor of a narrow frame of reference and a high degree of nexus is that modern international humanitarian law actually balances two contradic <coughs> often conflicting goals. It is neither about just rendering war as humane as possible, nor is it about letting military pragmatism run wild. It is about striking a balance between imperatives that often point in opposing directions in war. While we don't actually know what it means to strike a balance between humanitarian and military concerns, if we didn't specify that the frame of reference for military advantage would need to be a generic military victory, then states would actually have the ability to simply follow their military, their interests, their military imperatives. Because in effect, whatever they could define, whatever they define as their goal would determine what is the military objective. So if they wanted to attack a specific object, they could just redefine their military objectives and hence be able to do so. Um, so basically, um, I believe that as a result, IHL does not allow the frame of reference to expand as far as um, political goals of a war, and it insists on a very high degree of nexus between an object and the, the competition among militaries for that object to be a military objective. And I argue that out of these interpretations, we can draw up a logic according to which IHL wants or thinks war ought to be waged. And it rests on two commands addressed to belligerents. And the first is to sharply distinguish between objects and persons that are closely related to the competition among military and everything else. Everything else is immune from attack. And the second, to sequence the use of force from the achievement of political goals. So while in war, while in the conduct of hostilities, um, belligerents have to bracket their political or moral goals and only refer to the military victory when devising how to act and who to injure and who to target. And only once you have achieved, war, um, have, have achieved military victory, you can then translate that into your political goals. So what I call sequencing, you have to sequence the use of force from the pursuit of politics. And these two commands rely on two um, assumptions of sufficiency, which is why I call the logic of sufficiency. 
The first is that actually the engagement of objects that are closely related to the competition among militaries in a significant number of cases is sufficient for such a competition to proceed and one side to win, to achieve generic military victory. And that generic military victory is in a large number of cases sufficient for states to then achieve their polit legitimate political goals. Now, that is always very controversial, specifically the second part. And I think the second sufficiency assumption only actually makes sense based on the fact um, that the international order is um, built on a presumption against the use of force. If states had a right to use force for the pursuit of political goals, then this would be essentially incoherent. But because it is not, no longer a legitimate tool of statecraft to use force in order to um, pursue political goals, international law can actually rule out war as a useful instrument for the achievement of a very wide range of political goals. And I'm happy to say something about self-defense <coughs> later, because that obviously being the one exception where states do have a right to use force. Something similar can be said about the first sufficiency assumption. Obviously, there is no eternal canon of objects that you need to be able to engage for such a military competition to um, go forward and for one side to achieve military victory. This is obviously a situationally contingent judgment of what is, what is actually sufficient to do. So because of that, um, basically what I would uh, interpret these not so much as assumptions or descriptions of reality, but as normative commands. What positive international humanitarian law asks belligerent to do is to draw such a line in good faith and to bracket political goals during, the combat, during combat operations. Um, so let me move on to the empirical part of the talk. Um, I, this is based on a comparative case study and I um, contrast the um, US air campaigns against North Vietnam, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, from 1965 to 1972. And they include sort of three discrete air campaigns, the Operation Rolling Thunder and the two linebacker operations. And I contrast this to Operation Desert Storm, the war against Iraq in 1991, and the war against Iraq in 2003, Operation Iraqi Freedom. And the case selection rests on three criteria. And the first is the extreme variation in the independent variable, which is the input of law into decision-making about targeting. Basically, um, law played a negligible role for targeting decisions during the Vietnam War. However, the Vietnam War paved the way for the legalization of US um, combat operations. It is hence the war that is closest in time to the later legalized combat operations. So I use it as a baseline case, and it is because it is closer in time, it is more comparable to um, the wars in Iraq than something like the Korean War or the Second World War would be. So basically the second criterion being comparability, that as many as um, possible that other parameters of war are as similar as possible. They're not quite that similar as I would like them to be, but as similar as one could, could hope for. And basically, if you look at the period from 1965 to 2003, there are a number of US, major US wars abroad that I don't look at. And one of the most important exclusion criteria is that I don't look at coalition warfare in which actually the coalition partners had substantive say over targeting choices, such as during Operation Allied Force. Because of the um, extreme variation where we go from no legal in almost no legal input to very comprehensive legalization, um, that is supposed to make it as easy as possible to um, draw out the difference that law makes. And the other 
um, sort of underlying rationale is that inter um, US air warfare, specifically air warfare in the 21st century, is possibly the most legalized warfare that is out there. So I chose basically the easiest case for law to be effective in terms of e extrapolating from my findings. So um, the legalization of US air warfare from Vietnam to Iraq, I basically follow or trace two indicators um, across these three cases. And the first is the entrenchment of professional legal opinion in military decision making. And this is about the increased role and size of a judge advocate's general corps that um, basically had nothing to say during the Vietnam War almost, and then inc and increased in size and institutional standing. Target selections during Operation Rolling Thunder were made, famously made at the Tuesday luncheons of President Johnson with his advisors. And the record is quite clear that there were no lawyers present for those luncheons. The linebacker operations were um, conducted by the Nixon administration, and the selection of targets shifted out of the White House into the field to military commanders. However, that did not at all lead to increased legal input, because at that point in time, Judge, Advocate Gen Judge Advocates General um, did not actually count among their tasks to give advice on operational legal matters. They were essentially private litigators, um, but did not, were not expected to advise on international humanitarian law. It is only in 1974 that the Pentagon, in reaction to the public outcry over the Milai massacre, actually tasks Jacks with um, advising on the legality of combat operation, and then trains an entirely new generation of, of Jacks that are combat savvy and um, knowledgeable in international humanitarian law. Um, 350 Jacks were then deployed with the troops in Operation Desert Storm, which was an unprecedented number at the time and amazed a lot of commentators. Yet this is actually dwarfed by the numbers of lawyers that were um, accompanied the troops 12 years later. And I have those numbers somewhere. Yeah, 2,200 Jacks, 350 civilian attorneys, and 1,500 paralegals went with the troops um, during Operation Iraqi Freedom. And it's not just their numbers, it is actually also the role that they had that changed quite significantly. In my research, I make um, quite detailed in inquiries into the separate stages of a targeting process, from the early development and intelligence gathering all the way to the execution of an airstrike. And let me just summarize that basically during Operation Desert Storm, lawyers were only really involved during what is called the um, master attack plan the um, drawing up of the master attack plan. And even then, it wasn't at all a routine or an institutionalized involvement, but they basically were just there to be consulted if someone wished to consult them. So their input was quite haphazard in a way. To the contrary, during Operation Iraqi Freedom, all these stages, from very early intelligence gathering to the execution of the airstrike, there's a systematic and institutionalized involvement of um, Jack's opinions. That goes as far as that Jacks are 24 hours in the command centers and they're available to give legal opinions even while the air crew is in the air. So besides the other passageway of how law could influence um, targeting decisions is not sort of via professional opinion, but via the fact that military decision makers themselves internalize law and perceive a legal obligation as bearing on their behavior. And that parameter changes pretty much as radically as the involvement of JAGS. Um, the documents, basically the records of both the Johnson and the Nixon administration are largely declassified, and there's really nothing to indicate 
that either one, either the, polit the political decision makers nor really the uh, military um, brass were at all concerned about international law as far as the conduct of operations is concerned. International law, if it is mentioned at all, it is always in the, um, in the context of legitimizing the use of force in the first place. And that changes quite radically again. I used um, interviews to tease out the sense of legal obligation among military decision makers for the, both Iraq wars. And um, I'm happy to say more later about the questions I asked and the answers I got, but mostly they can be summarized in the sense that um, military personnel were aware of their legal obligations in 1991. It wasn't that they didn't know there was international humanitarian law, but there was a very um, general feeling that because of the type of war that the type of warfare that professional U.S. military personnel would wage, there wasn't really a need to separately consult law, because good intentions, limited war games, technological superiority all meant you weren't really in any danger to break the law in the first place. That is radically different to uh, veterans of the 2003 um, war, war, who basically are acutely legally aware and even eager for legal input, and they all describe how comprehensively they were trained and how they don't just have to know the law, but basically have to internalize that in the sense that if someone wakes them up in the middle of the night, they can not necessarily quote the Geneva Conventions, but the rules of engagement and the special instructions. So the finding is basically that um, international law goes from virtual irrelevance to omnipresence in targeting decision-making. So what was actually hit in these um, three campaigns? There are three main trajectories of change, and the first is the increase, decreased importance of interdiction operations. I consulted many different definitions of interdiction and ultimately just made up my own, the, which um, I base on two criteria, and the one is that the target falls in um, a certain range of categories, which is essentially military personnel, military equipment, um, transport routes and um, infrastructure that is used mainly for military purposes. And the second um, criterion being the intent or the purpose behind the attack being attrition, the erosion of actual military <coughs> capabilities. So during um, the three campaigns against North Vietnam, about 90% of airstrikes fall in the category of interdiction. Interdiction then continues to play a role, but it it declines. Um, during the Operation Desert Storm, 86% of airstrikes fall in that category. 68 if you take out of the equation the Kuwait theater of operations, so airstrikes against Kuwait. And I can say more about it later whether or not that makes sense, but it is definitely a decrease. And 75% um, of airstrikes against um, during operation, the initial stages of Operation Iraqi Freedom um, fall in the category of interdiction. And I'm also happy to say more about how I came up with these numbers later. So hand in hand with this trend um, goes the emergence of new categories of dual use targets and an increase of their role in the um, sort of increase of their share in the overall airstrikes. Obviously that has to be the case because these remaining um, airstrikes, have, there has to be another function of air power that gains in importance. Basically, um, dual use targets during the um, air campaigns against Vietnam are mostly limited to transport and industry, and during what is called Rolling Thunder 52, which is sort of one little outlier in the bombing of Vietnam, it is also related to sort of oil industry and um, fossil, anything related to energy. Um, that is still an interest, a target category in Operation Desert Storm, but in Operation Desert Storm, on top of that, there is a much more systematic effort to neutralize um, infrastructure 
power plants, water treatment plants, basically the um, industrial backbone of a society. In Operation Iraqi Freedom, that is less important, but this time um, entirely new categories of um, targets emerge. For instance, civilian leaders. So civilian, in, in inverted commas to a certain extent, civilian leaders, but also politically, generally, um, genuinely civilian political infrastructure like party headquarters, as well as uh, media facilities, both state and privately owned. And that actually points towards the third trend, which is the emergence of um, target categories or airstrikes, which bear, bear virtually no direct, um, have virtually no direct impact on the military capabilities of the enemy. Actually, to a certain extent, the US attempted to bypass destroying military capabilities um, in Operation Desert Storm and even more so in Operation Iraqi Freedom. And there's really no clear connection between um, targeting privately owned media um, facilities and the military capabilities of Iraq. So this is the third trajectory of change. And if we ask what is the common denominator of these, it is pretty clear that they have a, there is a loosening of the nexus between objects and the actual military effort of the enemy. And um, basically, the frame of reference changes to the extent that in the later, in, um, in Operation Desert Storm, but even more so in Operation Iraqi Freedom, targeting emerges that is, um, has a, comes out of a very short line of thinking from the overall political goals and the strategic context of a war to the targeting choice. I have attempted to make this a little more clear in this table, which was maybe not successful. But um, basically, what I try to do is, um, based on the documents that I had available, to map the causal chains, the imagined causal chains that lead to targeting choices. And there are different ones for all these three case studies. And then count the average number of steps. And those are longest, the causal chains, for the um, air wars against um, Vietnam, even though I counted fully the last causal chain, which is only for the last 11 days, the so-called Christmas bombing, in which the US sort of strayed from the separate articulation of political goals and military goals and, and military um, objectives. <coughs> During Operation Desert Storm, you have this traditional um, causal chain, but you also have, and um, this is something I maybe have to argue about more later, you have targets that are inspired not at all by the military goal of ousting um, Iraq from Kuwait, but some of the targeting successively of downtown, um, downtown Baghdad can only basically explain in terms of the grand strategic context of the US wielding its might in a um, post-Cold War world in which um, it <coughs> won't allow to ride any state roughshod over the international order and wants to actually drive that point home. For Operation Iraqi Freedom, this becomes incredibly complicated because at all stages, at all levels of abstraction, military and political goals are very tightly enmeshed. There's almost no separate articulation <coughs> of political goals at the um, highest level. And on the other hand, even what is considered to be a list of operational objectives includes things like um, making, making Iraq safe for the Middle East, <coughs> promoting democracy, and laying the roots for a democratic state. So basically, um, another thing that is very telling, the US doesn't operate with the concept of target sets anymore, but calls these um, desired mean points of impact that are based on what they call strategy to task missions. So it is acknowledged that each of these um, targeting choices it should be as closely as possible related to the overall political goal, in this case of regime change. So the um, average number of causal steps has yet again declined. 
So if this is a move away from the logic of sufficiency in light of the degree of nexus in the frame of reference, what takes its place? I call it the logic of efficiency because it rejects the commands of distinction and sequencing exactly to the extent that those are efficiency-defying. So this logic does formally adhere to distinction. It's not that the US doesn't distinguish anymore at all, but it basically um, broadens the, um, loosens the degree of nexus between objects and the military competition, and based on the broader range of available objects, it can then choose those that promise to most efficiently contribute to victory. And victory is defined no longer as generic military victory, but as the desired political end state. So essentially, this logic rejects um, sequencing, and it redefines distinction. And I probably can't say this often enough, that I'm not arguing at all that the US has gone back to sort of Second World War terror bombing, because this logic of efficiency is obviously reminiscent of some of the early sort of air power enthusiasts thought about strategic bombing. But I have put it here in basically that this would be the logic of efficiency in its extreme versus what we see in US warfare is the logic of efficiency in a moderate form. Both reject um, sequencing in the sense that they do not think you should separately articulate military from political goals, but actually that um, political goals should enter um, every decision at whatever low level of um, in combat operation. But the difference between those two is that um, strategic bombing doctrine, to a certain extent, rejects distinction, whereas um, the logic of efficiency just redefines it, and it does so in the, within the indeterminacy that the definition of a military objective provides, at least its textual interpretation, as I said at the very beginning. So basically what we have is sort of a change in the penumbra of uncertainty of an indeterminate law, rather than a rejection of a long-standing uh, legal principle of how to wage war. But obviously there's still quite a lot of difference to the logic of sufficiency. So um, how do I think that, why do I think that sufficiency is normally normatively preferable to efficiency? I should say that this is not at all an argument based on any kind of investigation or empirical claim regarding how much casualties or harm or suffering either of these logics will produce. For various reasons, it is impossible to make systematic predictions about which logic in which context will make, mean more or less human suffering. It's basically the question, you know, are quick wars, sharp and quick and brief wars better, or are drawn out and distinguishing wars better? But ultimately, there's, it would be almost irresponsible to make claims about that, because we just can't repeat the same exact war um, with, once with one logic and once with the other one. It would also, to a certain extent, be dishonest to make that the normative standard, because neither of the logics actually acknowledges as a goal the absolute minimization of human suffering or civilian, civilian or other casualties. Both of the logics attempt to strike a balance between the demands of military, um, of combat operations and humanitarian imperatives. But the way they strike a balance is radically different. And what I'm saying here is that the way that the logic of sufficiency strikes the balance is preferable to the way the logic of efficiency does so. And the first is that sufficiency, uh, the logic of efficiency undermines possibly the most fundamental normative pillar of the international order, which is that you cannot um, pursue politics with force. So a lot of people have said to me, but obviously, if you wage war according to the logic of sufficiency, you also pursue politics with force. You just have the extra step of having to get generic military victory in between. But I don't think this is merely an aesthetic problem that I have if you allow, basically, efficient um, 
the use of force as an efficient tool for the um, achievement of political goals, the logic of sufficiency actually makes winning wars hard. And it rules war out as an um, effective instrument for a whole range of political goals that you cannot simply achieve based on a on generic military victory. So in that sense, it is much more in line with an international order that is premised on um, presumption against the use of force than the logic of efficiency. The second point is that under the logic of sufficiency, there is a certain amount of predictability in agency, what sort of objects land on what sort of side of the distinction line. To the contrary, for the logic of efficiency, what will be attacked, what is a legitimate target, is a function of the political goals of a belligerent. That is not just in theory open-ended, but it is also in practice much less predictable and much less um, individuals can do much less about it as they attempt to go to safe places or preserve their property. The fourth reason is that um, what I said earlier, that even though it is in some ways striking a balance, if you say we get the war over with as quickly as possible, that is a way of attempting to do justice to both humanitarian and military um, imperatives. But I think it is radically um, inferior to the way that the logic of sufficiency strikes that balance, which is essentially by ring-fencing war, by limiting its reach. And I think the... Um, the problem is that in reality, in effect, um, this provides a, efficiency provides an opening for um, belligerents to ultimately just follow their, their military goals. Partly because we don't know how quickly you could possibly ever achieve efficiency and because there is the essentially open-ended infinite range of political goals that a um, belligerent might set for themselves. At one point in time, Every, in every war, one belligerent will realize they're probably going to, to lose. The logic of efficiency then provides an incentive, even an invitation, if you consider how high the stakes are, for that belligerent to just redefine their goals and therefore bring entirely new categories of objects within reach of legitimate engagement. So basically, it, rather than making wars brief in reality, it bears the danger of drawing them out and escalating them. The last normative problem with the logic of efficiency only applies for extremer versions of the logic of efficiency. That they basically undermine um, one of the most widespread um, and legitimate principles of the regulation of war, that is non-combatant immunity. All of what I've said so far is about objects and the law that defines, um, that distinguishes between combatants and civilians, so the law about persons, is actually not as indeterminate as the law about objects. So this is mostly just about objects. But um, it is an argument that needs to be made in much more detail, but basically the, this is a slippery, slippery slope argument. That once you start um, basically undermining the law, drawing a clear and definitive line of distinction between objects, there's an incentive to do the same for persons. Specifically because um, if the targeting of objects is so open-ended as it is under the logic of efficiency, you're much more likely to produce much more collateral damage in the first place. I should acknowledge that there are a couple of steps that I have omitted in this argument, and I'm happy to elaborate on any one of them in the Q&A. And the first is that I have actually not shown the connection between legal input and the rise of the logic of efficiency. All I've shown here is a co coincidence in time. And I have skipped that because this is ultimately, again, about the um, social science, the, um, the theoretical discussion I have about cognitive and motivational processes and how they change. And, 
in my work, I try to establish how the specific recourse to this law um, encourages or um, contributes to constituting a, a meaning of what it means to do the legitimate thing in war, and that is in um, waging war efficiently. What I don't argue at all is that international humanitarian law is the only, um, the rise of legal input is the only factor in this um, increased emphasis on efficiency. Quite the contrary, actually. It plays, it is possibly necessary as part of a bunch of factors. And one of them is military doctrine. Um, the rise of doctrines like um, effects-based operations or strategic attack or network-centered network attack, they all have essentially um, similar currents that they try to make very um, short line of thinking between political context and choices in war. And the other um, sort of incentive to be efficient in war is international public scrutiny, which has risen in, par in parallel with the legal input. Military technology is um, relevant insofar as the logic of efficiency um, is much more dependent on extremely precise targeting than the logic of sufficiency. So it is in some ways an enabling um, condition. Could international humanitarian law impose the logic of sufficiency? This is obviously a necessary argument if I want to say currently international humanitarian law is not normatively successful. For that to be true, I have to show that it could actually do better. But I think this is quite straightforward. It is clear why attackers have an incentive to wage war efficiently. So in order for law to actually um, constrain them, it would just have to be much more determinate regarding the required degree of nexus and the required frame of reference um, for the determination of progress in war. But then there's really no reason why it shouldn't be able to impose the logic of sufficiency. The last point I want to make here, which goes back to the initial puzzle of legalization not quelling at all moral outrage about <coughs> warfare, is would the logic of sufficiency actually satisfy our moral expectation of legally regulated war? Would we then have um, fewer problems with warfare? No, unfortunately. Um, I argue that the logic of sufficiency still treats the, allows the individual to be treated as a means to an end. It allows the victimization of individuals regardless of their personal um, status. It allows the violation of their most basic human right, their right to life. And basically what accounts for the increased moral outrage about war are much larger trends that <coughs> increasingly expect international law to provide just that, to protect the human person even in war. And that international law cannot possibly fulfill that goal um, and definitely not based on the logic of sufficiency. So just to recapitulate the <coughs> argument, International humanitarian law is found to be behaviorally relevant because it encourages the rise of the logic of efficiency. But because the logic of efficiency is normatively inferior to the logic of sufficiency, I find it not normatively successful and hence only partially effective. Thank you.